Hey, it's Courtney Barriger, your host of Environmental Style Now, the A to Z podcast on all that is sustainable fashion. Now, on this episode of ES Now, I'm with Emma Riley of Lonely Whale, here to discuss sustainable strategies in ocean conservation. I'm Courtney Barriger, and this is ES Now. Today, I'm with Emma Riley, the Director of Strategic Partnerships of award-winning Lonely Whale, an incubator for courageous ideas that drive impactful market-based change on behalf of our ocean. In her role, Emma serves as brand strategist, focusing on building cross-industry and cross-cultural partnerships and spearheading radically collaborative efforts that strengthen Lonely Whale's global presence and impact. Let's jump right in. So Lonely Well, we're a small and very young ocean health NGO, started about four years ago in New York City by Lucy Sumner and Adrian Grenier. And we launched our organization because we realized there was a disconnection between sort of the advertising, marketing, entertainment industry space and those working within the American environmental movement, but very specifically within ocean health. Mm-hmm. Um, we realized that if, there's a de- if there were a direct connection between the strategies that are successful in terms of selling a consumer a product mm-hmm. and those that are attempting to sell a consumer the importance of ocean conservation, we may be able to get further faster and create better, bigger, stronger, more widespread impact. I see. So it's sort of like using consumerism, which is something that you really can't change, but shifting that gear through partnerships. That's exactly it. So I run our pop culture campaigns and I run many of our major global partnerships. And what that means is I sort of am constantly researching trends and forecasting where trends will go across um, the individual consumer, across um sort of the ocean conservation space, so what people are working on, where, and when, and why, and then as well across brand CSR. So what people, what companies, what major corporations are committing to, and how are they working on it. I then develop sort of a portfolio of who we'd like to partner with and go after them. My background is in marketing and advertising, creative strategy, and whatnot. That work is sort of key to success in terms of the Lonely Well portfolio. We did run a straw with ocean campaign, that is right. We run major pop culture campaigns focused on shifting behavior, both in big business as well as within sort of the individual consumer in a way in which we're creating an impact, a positive impact for our ocean. So what that means is what sunscreen are you choosing? Are you using little plastic baggies to wrap your child's sandwich in them when you send them off to school? Why are you asking for two straws when really you don't want any? And then how can we, as Lonely Whale, create such an intriguing conversation around that one choice you're making Mm -hmm. that you no longer make that choice? And in fact, 
every time you go to make that choice, you go to make that decision, you go to ask for that item or look for it in a drugstore, you switch your thinking and you immediately think about what you can do that's positive in regards to our ocean. Brilliant. Who came up with the campaign slogan, hashtag stop sucking? <laughs> we worked with a wonderful creative agency in the city of Seattle. The agency is called Possible. And uh, quite frankly, they pitched us that concept. They pitched us sort of the overarching notion of let's just talk about, frankly, how stupid sucking on a single plastic straw actually is. Let's not go any deeper than that. <laughs> because it, it kind of is. You know, I mean, there are certain instances, if you have a child, if you have a certain form of a disability, I mean, where you do truly need that. We have acknowledged those through and through in terms of our campaign and the work that we've done. This creative agency was really brilliant in just saying, let's just hit them straight on the head. Like, let's bonk them right over the top. We think that that might be most successful. And we kind of thought, yeah, why not try just that? Slapstick humor. No <laughs> one had tried that before in the ocean conservation phase. Truly slapstick humor. I mean, if you look at the PSAs that we put together for that campaign, one of them is an octopus arm slapping single-use plastic straws out of people's faces. <laughs> <laughs> then set to a soundtrack. I don't know if you've seen that piece of content. We produce all of our original pieces of content in-house. I sort of sit at driving those. I mean, the first was that total slapstick. The second was a handful of celebrities confessing to camera about how often they suck. You know, I mean, it's just complete <laughs> slapstick humor. This creative agency in Seattle was dead on right. They were so accurate in just saying, you know what, let's take this angle no ocean health organization has taken it before. We trusted their really brilliant team. And fast forward two years, it's now a global movement. A lot of partners, a lot of other organizations working on it at the same time. A lot of individuals really taking it on as their own. That's, that's movement making. But it started with plastic. And it's really, it's really fun to direct back to that because people typically don't affiliate plastic humor with the environmental movement. Yeah, not it not at all. Usually it's very like serious and um so in that campaign as well, it's it kind of gave way to Seattle changing its laws. It did. Seattle was the first city to pass legislation in regards to single use plastic straw. And we now have seen that ripple effect elsewhere, which is really wonderful to see. We know that when we create a space for consumers to have fun within in regards to ocean conservation efforts and the choices they're making, brands will notice. And we know that corporate commitment can lead way to shifts in legislation, shifts in policy, and vice versa. But we have released sort of our second pop culture campaign called Hydrate, and we released it this summer within about a month of the release of it. We saw both Pepsi and Coca-Cola commit to shifting a brand of their single-use plastic water bottles to an aluminum product. And I have no doubt that their commitment and other commitments to come triggered by this fun and very silly, lighthearted campaign we'd launched a month prior will set in place policy in the years to come. It takes time. Seattle was a really rare occurrence in that 
the city caught wind of a campaign we were producing and stepped forward asking us to align with their announcement in regards to legislation. They are all connected. It's one solar system, consumer behavior, big business behavior, and policy shifts. They are hand in hand in hand. And the more often we as activists recognize that, I think the closer we'll get to creating real change in the world. That's incredible. Your ideas and your team's ideas are shaping legislation and corporate commitments. How does that feel? Uh, it's really fun. <laughs> it's, it's really fun. You know, our executive director, she knows, as do sort of, you know, most of those on our team, that it, it, it pays to go big or go home. Like it pays to look at your slugging percentage versus your on-base percentage because that one big win has really set the world ahead in a way that your bunch just wouldn't have. We constantly try and hit Grand Slam. We fail, and frankly, quite a few of the ideas don't even come to market. But when they're good, we bring them. And more often than not, they create real change. You yourself have been named an up-and-coming culture creator. Mm-hmm. How funny is that? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, it's funny. Culture is like such an overused word right now, but I'm really happy to hear it and, and be affiliated with being a culture creator. If it's a, if it's a position for good, you know what I mean? So, as I, I mean, the same with you, right? You're doing the same thing for good. It's, in that sense, I'm like very happy to, to be considered a culture creator. <laughs> yeah, well, gosh, what's sad to say is it all surprises me on a daily basis. It's like a bummer that essentially everything that I interact with on a daily basis used to surprise me. And now I just am a bit numb by it because there's so much. I mean, there's just so much being thrown at us all the time. I think one of the things that still does surprise me, sort of complementary to it, is like the lack of awareness mm-hmm. about it. It's really just so, like how up the fashion industry is, is one of the lead polluters in the world. It really doesn't matter what list it is, top five industries. And you know, something that surprises most consumers, A, is that the case, but also be that plastic is oil. And so the oil industry is constantly looking at what products can we begin to literally push more and more and more plastic into, wherein consumers wouldn't notice it, they wouldn't be aware of it, um, they're still going to purchase it, even with what's become now a global movement, a global trend in regards to the reduction of single-use plastic and consumerism, at least in like the first world. And I would bet that unless the fashion industry really steps up in a big way at a mass consumer level, so I'm talking about sort of your like, American mall brand that more and more and more oil and plastic will be pumped into the industry because it can be hidden in the industry. That always surprises me, A, that the industry is just up there with what you eat, you know, and so on and so forth. And then as well as just most people have no idea. They just don't know. They don't realize it. 
And and frankly, I don't think that it's it's that they don't want to know. I th- I'd say that in some other spaces, you know, it might be that consumers just don't want to pay attention to, for example, what's in their sunscreen. Mm-hmm. And is it harming coral reefs? They don't want to pay attention to that because they want to go on vacation and, and, and they don't want to have to spend an extra $10 on sunscreen that they'll use for five days. But I think in, in, in the fashion industry, in fact, people would care. It, it really, it hasn't gotten to middle America. You know, it's not in Nebraska, this dialogue, this narrative. Let's be a little bit more aware about what you're wearing because the industry as a whole is a pretty big pollutant. It hasn't gotten to, like, it hasn't gotten to Omaha. It hasn't gotten to... <laughs> I'm from Jacksonville. You know, I mean, truly. <laughs> oh, no way. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, that's crazy. <laughs> well, it got to you. But you know what I mean. Anyways, hard statistics. Nine percent of all plastic is recycled. That's it. Wow. Globally, it's nothing. That's it. All all plastic, single use plastic. What's crazier than that? You know, Tetra Pak, so the boxed waters of the world. Uh huh. And the product is like used for soup and for milk, and it's supposedly you know a healthier alternative to single use plastic. Guess how often it's recycled. Oh, well, if you said 9%, I'm going to go with 5%. 2%. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. So what's surprising to me, again, is just like how little we are aware of what's going on. And that's from producer all the way down to consumer. You look at boxed water and you think, oh, my gosh, yes. Like I found an alternative to the single-use plastic water bottle. Well, in fact, chances are that single-use plastic water bottle you're purchasing would be recycled. Wow. And then, whereas is it because yeah. is it because people aren't aware that they can put that in the recycle bin and they're just putting it in the trash? So it's a it's sort of a variety of different issues. The American recycle. Let's just if we're looking at the United States, but globally, this is certainly the case. Recycling infrastructures are completely broken. Single-use plastic, because it isn't a layered product, and more often than not, it depends on the plastic. But let's say single-use plastic water bottle is not a layered product. Easier to recycle within a mechanical recycling center, which is your average recycling center. Tetra Pak layered, very layered. Cardboard, metal, plastic has to be stripped apart in order to be effectively recycled. Based on the municipality, based on the amount of money in the city, the recycling center doesn't have the mechanics to strip apart that product, recycle each layer as its own. It can't be recycled. That's one. Two, the way that we interact with recycling varies city by city, frankly, income by income, and is driven by ease. I spend about every other week in New York City. I am still, to this day, having lived in New York for a long time, spending more time than I'd like to admit still in New York, blown away by the fact that there aren't recycling bins on every corner. makes it very, very, very difficult to put anything in recycling because most people don't go home during the day. You think about a New Yorker living in Manhattan, so your stereotypical New Yorker, they're out from 6 a.m. until 10 p.m. every night. That's what they moved to New York to do. Yeah. They're not recycling because the city hasn't invested in structures, spaces, bins, etc., to make it easy for the people that call Manhattan home to do that. 
Well, so our cycling centers yeah. are funded locally, and it's a real problem. Well, I believe that because being from Jacksonville, I was shocked to find out. How funny that you're from Jacksonville. Yeah, I know. I that don't you... know why I said that. I must be psychic. <laughs> That's so wild. Yeah, it's crazy. But yeah, I found out that they're no longer recycling plastic. It's just something that the municipality there decided not to do. And I was just mm-hmm. shocked by it. I'm like, you guys, there's you know almost 2 million people in this city. Can you imagine how much trash there is? Why would you stop? I'm assuming that they probably sent it to China and this whole... This whole international thing has interrupted that. Yeah, I mean, we used to ship all of our trash elsewhere. What will happen now that we can no longer ship it to China is it has already started to head to the global south, so to you know parts of Southeast Asia, which are already in really dire situations. Yeah, the plastic problem is it's an overwhelming issue when you begin to sort of have open dialogue about it like we are. I think what we can all do, which you have done, is focus on one very specific thing, right? So for us at home now, it's behavior change across the board, but it's behavior change for yourself, the fashion industry. That then gives you sort of a nice bite-sized chunk to play within, and frankly, it could really move the needle. So not yet, but we are actively researching what a campaign will look like, uh, and we plan to launch one within a year, and we plan to do so in a way in which it'll really move the needle. So we're doing deep, detailed research on the um, subject, which is what we do with all of our major campaigns. We spend six to eight to a year's worth of time researching the subject matter. Yeah, I would say that's incredibly necessary. How can the fashion industry and consumer brands reduce their amount of waste? I'd like to ask brands to listen to their consumers more deeply. And what I mean by that is there's a younger generation that will own the majority of the market in a few years in terms of purchasing power. And they're on the street. They are out loud saying, we don't want your health. We don't want your plastic pollution. We don't want your mass consumerism. I, generally speaking, and this definitely taps into the fashion industry, I want executives, I want those that make the decisions at the stores that are at the malls across America where 14-year-olds are shopping to spend time listening to those 14-year-olds. They're starting to. But if they did, they'd pick up on, they would hear a shift in the dialogue, at least within the United States, in regards to the way a younger generation is purchasing. They're purchasing local. They're purchasing sustainable. They're purchasing from brands with transparency across their supply chain. And I think that we'd all be in a better place if sort of the C-suites of the world spent time speaking to the 14-year-olds of the world, really understanding what's important to them and what will be important to them in the next 10, 20, 30 years. One of the surprisingly problematic trends out there is the donation of clothes. We offset what we have in our closet to those in need. More often than not, they end up sitting in a landfill. As a consumer, try and thrift, buy secondhand. I have a very good friend. I'm going to plug a I'm going to plug a brand, if it's okay with you. No, go ahead. Um, Right now. 
but I have a very good friend who she's based in Paris and she has made it her mission to recognize the importance of shopping secondhand. Her brand is called Supermarché and the way that she does that, she upcycles all secondhand clothes, cuts them apart, employs women a rate that is a livable wage in Paris create new designs with these old secondhand clothes and sell them at portable designer rates so that she can pay the women that she employs in the center of Paris. The clothing is beautiful. It is stylish. It is just top of the mark. She has made it her mission to think outside of the box. And it's small. She's one person creating a space for those 14-year-olds to find home in a way in which mass consumerism, big brands are not yet doing. What I ask of big brands in the fashion space, again, is to listen to those 14-year-olds and look at, you know, my friend who started this brand, Supermarché, and, and really tap into what they're doing well and what they're doing for themselves and for their peers. That's really, really cool. I'm also a big fan of skinhand. I buy everything on Poshmark. Yeah. If I can afford it, Reformation. I'm always looking for that price point that's just going to make me happy. I'd love to hear about one of your favorite moments since joining Lonely Whale. Oh, and I'd also love to hear how you got started and how you were compelled to take it up as a career. Oh my gosh. <laughs> because there are so many. My favorite... My favorite moment since joining Lonely Well is watching the diversity of the movement grow and grow and grow and grow. The space now, compared to what it was four or five years ago, is so drastically different. It could get more diverse. And I want to be very clear that it is not yet at a place where we as activists can claim that we're like wholly inclusive. The space has just become a really wonderful mixing melting pot in a way that it wasn't a few years ago. It's not specific to Lonely Well, but it's something that has happened during the time that I've been being in the space. And it's been really cool to watch. A friend of our organization, really brilliant activist, Sean Heinrich, a real sort of Batman in the space. He's an in-the-field ocean conservation activist. He has single-handedly shifted cultures away from terrorizing certain creatures to respecting them. You know, there are communities that have fished and fished and fished and fished and fished and fished and fished for years, and they're running their well dry in terms of one species or another. And he really, he looks at that and he works on changing that in that area locally with respect for the local culture. And it's amazing work. Very recently, there, are you familiar with CITES? I'm not, um, no. So if you look it up, it's sort of the sort of global organization that puts species, um, flora and fauna, on endangered. And it's harder than you'd imagine to get a species on an endangered land for various reasons. Countries have to come together and vote as a unit, as a global voice, to put a certain species on an endangered. It's really hard. It's depressingly hard. There's a species called the mako shark. So we know sharks are apex predators. They're extremely important in the ocean. They essentially keep the ocean in balance. The mako shark was going extinct. Just this past year, Sean fought tooth and nail and our organization joined him in the fight to get the mako shark on the endangered 
list. It was essentially the last chance we had to prevent the mako shark from going extinct. Sharks are so, and we got them protection. And this was not that long ago. This was like maybe two months ago. So amazing to see a band of organizations come together, work with this real leader in the space to make it a reality. I had no idea it takes so much effort. It is wild. No one knows, which is a problem, but we infiltrate with that Batman character of ours. (laughs) We're like, we'll support you. We're like the Batmobile. And he just goes in. You guys are really moving mountains. It's it's so obvious. What's the future like if we continue on without changing anything? Yeah. Truly, we have about 10 years until we really start to see very clearly and very obviously a shift in our natural environment. We started to see it. My partner and I live in Northern California and we have been completely suffocated for a few weeks every fall from fires up north. Mm. I have a few friends that were that were displaced and one friend who had her home burned down in Sonoma this year. So it started to happen. We have about 10 years before while hell breaks loose. I hate to say it, but it's the truth. And the world changes at a pace that we just can't control. Mm. I'll also say that there's more being done now than there has ever been done. And that's awesome and amazing. And it's up to us to keep championing it and keep doing it on a daily basis so others feel as though they can too, to not hit that 10-year mark. The Industrial Revolution set us back so far. It's not their fault. They had no idea that what they pumped into rivers would stay there for hundreds of years. I mean, God, they're finding seahorses in and around Manhattan's waterways now, again, after those waterways were polluted for years and years. Small efforts, local cleanup, schools speaking to the issue, awareness, training kids as to how to work in their communities can make a difference. They're now finding seahorses. Oysters are being planted and growing again in New York's waterways. No one ever thought that that would happen. 50 years ago, no, they were just completely polluted. We can all create change and we can all create change that matters. We can do it locally and we can do it virtually. We can do it on a mass scale. We can do it at a very small scale. It all contributes to us not hitting that 10-year mark where we can't turn back the clock. I just want to say again, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me all about what Lonely Whale is doing. Um, I think if not now, very soon everyone will be thanking you. Well, thank you as well. It was so lovely connecting with you. All right. Bye. Bye. A huge thank you to Emma Riley of Lonely Whale. Your contribution to ocean conservation is already seeing an impact. May we all lose our straws and stop sucking. Now you can follow Lonely Whale on their Instagram at Lonely Whale and also visit their website www.lonelywhale.org. Thank you for listening and have an awesome February.
Hey, this is Andrea in Cedar City. ES Now is a Holding Court production and is written and produced by Courtney Barriger. Music is by Parker Ainsworth. Fact-checked by Justin Howard. And a special thanks to Alexandra Schuck.